1: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Nightlight. Mark Eddy has some amazing guests tonight, and they promised to give us an enthralling evening. So I am looking forward to being enthralled, enlightened, and informed. Maybe at least one of the three. Um, so I'm going to bring Mark on. <clears throat> evening, Mark. How are you doing?
2: I'm fine. How are you, Barbara?
1: Doing well. Doing well. I'm excited about tonight. It's going to be a good night.
2: Yeah, I I, I was excited to um, see the photos of uh, the white squirrel.
1: Ah, <laughs> me too. I've never seen one, actually. For, uh, for those who are, who are wondering, it's on my Facebook page. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, 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 it, it was something really unique. I, I was you know, just glad to see you know, you have like such such a um, I don't know what you call it um the, uh, outstanding visitor
1: yeah i'm fortunate here uh, a couple of years ago i had a, a white uh white skunk as well so um this is uh i live in a magical place However, the raccoons are not white, so you know I, it, the magical comes and goes. Right. Well,
2: yeah. I'm, I I had uh, Amy's delicious raviolis, uh, Sophia's and her sidekicks, yummy tabbouleh and artichoke bread. So I'm ready for the enthralling to start.
1: Fantastic. Who do I bring on?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Let's do their uh, little uh, biographies. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, we have okay. uh, the husband of Jerry Ann's friend and the treasurer and producer of the AAPS conferences, Judy Johnson. Um, if you haven't guessed who. The Husband of Jerry Ann's Friend is. It is, you know, one of the fan fra- favorites of Night Light, Rick Osman. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's uh, one of the leading voices of Ancient American Magazine and advisor to the magazine as well. Uh, author of the uh, Grades of the Golden Bear and my husband-in-law. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know as you know we get into the holiday season, it's just nice to be able to say a lot of nice things about people when you know Judy's like one of these uh you know people you know, well I think we've just kind of known each other for about three years, and you know uh, we've done a lot of networking uh, you know promoting a uh, a p s you know the ancient artifact preservation society e-meeting some of the speakers, collaborating with so many other talented people, uh, and help promote the conference as well as helping us to uh, have top-quality guests for the shows. But it's just really becoming more than just mutually benefiting each other. It's like, you know, just... Developing into you know friendships and collaborations and <clears throat> me, uh, meeting more uh, like-minded people. And, you know, so, and we need to hear her point of view too. So, um, you, know, so, uh, so you know, so many people in the alternative history m- movement are you know, just becoming a close group, and it's motivated people like GD who are making a positive difference, so you know, I think we're just going to have a nice time talking about APS and where uh, you know these kind of conferences are going. You know, uh, the DVDs as well, so let's uh, get get started and welcome Rick and Judy. Thank you, Mark.
3: <laughs> Unmuted. Oh, Hello.
2: And, oh, okay. There's <laughs> Rick. Hi, Rick. And, and and uh so Judy, you, you know, it seems like you're working year round to bring the annual AAP, AAPS conference to you know a, a lot of people. Each October, uh, you know, what does you know your job well, entail? It,
4: um, I'm sort of coordinator for a lot of things. I'm an experienced event planner. I managed a, a large art, a national art show uh, for eleven years. Uh, I'm a firstborn Leo. You know, whenever I get involved in something, I wind up being in charge of things. And so, what's so exceptional about doing this work and bringing people together is one, like you said, the networking. And I will talk with somebody on the phone and they will say that they're studying this and that and this is what they're excited about. And I said, gee whiz, do you know this other person? And they said, no, I don't, but I would love to meet them. So I'll get permission to give out their phone number and then uh, have them call one another. And Then they find pieces to put together. When our group was founded before we were even having a name uh, by our darling friend, who's now gone, is uh, Fred Reedholm, also a historian, a lifelong teacher. And he said, don't throw anything out. Lay all the pieces on the table and see how they fit. And uh, we don't need to agree with one another. If we all agreed, we'd never learn anything. And so we apparently have an exceptional conference. I've heard from people who go to other conferences that said that ours is more fun, warmer, nobody hollers at the speakers. (laughs) And I said, really? They do that? And they said, oh, yeah, they do. And we have many differing areas of research, different personalities, different ideas, and we don't need to agree, but we do honor the presenter and we honor the research and my biggest kick is at a conference when somebody will say dang you know that's just what I've been looking for, it's sort of a missing piece for me and it does it kind of fits our philosophy Lay all the pieces on the table and see how they fit but uh, what's cool for me I keep thinking throughout a conference it's a small world after all and the more that we no, the world does seem smaller the more that we are coming together. And our Native Americans in our group point this out to us. They would not be with us if we did not have harmony. They would walk right out. But our Native population of attendees is growing and our participation. The chief of a tribe, of the Potawatomi tribe here, is on our board. They like what we do. And they've even invited us to be participative and use space in their cultural center, the uh, Potawatomi Cultural Heritage Center, which is built in the shape of a turtle, so it's called the Turtle Center. And they've been unbelievably generous and just darling. We love them, and apparently they love us back. And we have uh, two cousins, the Jibwa cousins, who close our conference. We never know what they're going to say. I never give them a title. And they sort of move with spirit. They come and listen to the conference and all the speakers, and and then they say what they're going to say, and it's from the heart. It's very warm and it's loving, and we all get warm fuzzies and and are happy to be together. Uh, and
5: yeah, my biggest That's- kick
4: is people on the phone. I learn so much from them. Maybe more on the phone with our potential speakers and speakers than I do during conference, because I'm tearing all over the place and missing things. So there. Okay. There's a bit and, of it.
2: <laughs> yeah, and uh, Rick was at the uh, conference in, in mid-October. And... First
4: weekend of October. Yeah. And we hadn't yeah. seen Rick for, I don't know, five years maybe at conference, yeah. and
5: we were delighted
4: to have him back, and... I tell you we were impressed. Rick gave a mighty fine presentation. It was clear, it was interesting, it had new things, new ways for us to look at things. And uh, we got very good uh, feedback from that.
3: Yeah, I also got some pretty good connections and other ways to look at what I was already doing. That's cool, what I see? really wanted.
4: That's what I love to hear.
3: The uh yeah, the I watched the DVD last night, and Brenda and I sat down and watched it, of my presentation. By the way, Keith is an expert editor. He's in the DVD, you don't hear me say, uh, not even once. Oh, <laughs> I oh yes. I, Our I videographer. I said, uh,
4: mm-hmm, Keith Pokinghorn, And he loves coming to the conference, too. He says ours is his favorite event to film. Oh, they don't call it filming anymore, but to record.
3: Yeah, he did it they they did an excellent job. He didn't do it alone, but Turkey brings it out. And, yeah, G you
2: know, Judy said, you know, Rick had a great uh, presentation taught everyone, you know, to look at things differently. Uh, Lon Krieger was there. Uh, Lee Pennington, so, so many other people, and if people weren't able to get uh, to Michigan in October, they can uh, get uh, DVDs of the conference and see what they missed and mm-hmm. hopefully be there next year. What uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the DVDs right. that uh, R- we Rick have, just mentioned?
4: We have eight DVDs and a, a nice little snap pack box with a, a wrapper on it showing photos of all of our speakers. And uh, it's it's kind of a it, well, we got all the speakers. We have got one of our fun things. We try to do something interesting and fun on a Friday night. One year we had the Native Dancers. Wow, they just knocked us out. Um, and we've had drumming. And this year we had drumming and storytelling. It's always been drumming all three years that we've been down at the Island Resort Casino Convention Center, and we rent the entire convention center. Beautiful service, beautiful facilities. They've got the equipment that we need, and the food is outstanding. And the service, they bend over backwards to make things go right for us. And uh, we sure like that and appreciate it very much.
3: They also have a saltwater pool. Ah, I'm saying that because I really enjoyed it. I can't do chlorine; it chokes me. I mean, literally, I get choked. Oh,
4: right, I can't go in the chlorine pool either.
3: So they have a well, saltwater pool nice. and a saltwater hot tub at the hotel, just in case yeah. you didn't know that, Judy.
4: Didn't, didn't know that. Maybe I'll try
2: I it next time.
3: The hot tub <laughs> since we came. And in, in, uh,
2: to. Judy, where can people get the DVDs? If our website
4: is www. as and Paul S is and Sam a a p s copper the word copper. dot org. We are a nonprofit organization. Uh, We've done a lot of things by the generosity donations of people. And in cash, in items to put in our silent auction, and now artifacts to put in our exhibit. And so we are growing. Um, So it is on our website. I had had a sale, a pre Christmas sale up till December 1st, uh, for this set of eight DVDs for $59 and free shipping. And I'd said that on December 1st, the price would be going up to $73. But when I heard about this radio show, I thought, well, okay, I'm not going to change the website. I'll keep the price down as a special treat. And a thank you for our listeners. So until December 10th, we'll keep the price at $59. And you will get to hear Rick, and he had a, a wonderful program about using mirrors for communicating great distances, one to another, one to another along, and they could go hundreds of miles, and it was much more than that. Uh, Richard Motz on archaeoastronomy and uh, on the Hopewell Observatory in Ohio. Sarah Kohler did a mighty fine job of stones and its and how it speaks to them, the arrangement of them, and right in her own backyard in uh, Massachusetts. Jeffrey Whittem, who lives in Connecticut, he probably has the biggest nose for stones that anybody I've ever met. And he's found hundreds and hundreds of dolmens, standing stones, menhairs, balanced rocks, all kinds of stones, and it's pretty amazing. And he's got some ideas of what they might mean. Lon Krieger was talking about the garden beds, ancient garden beds here in Michigan and a little bit on the tippy-top of Wisconsin and into the U.P., uh, Jim Schurz, Dr. Jim Scherz, he's so smart. He's a, oh shoot, surveyor. And he can follow alignments between major sites, mounds, uh, dolmens, and make sense of them and, and connect them from even to places around the world. Lee Pennington is the most delightful presenter. He's I I even said in in our written introduction that he was the sweetheart, and my husband read that, and he said, my wife wrote that. I said, yeah, (laughs) I did. (laughs) And uh, we never know what he's going to talk about, but whatever it is, it's well-researched. And uh, Jay Wakefield, who's written a couple of very good books, he travels the world, and he's talking about the curious Ica stones of Peru, And we had uh, Earl Meshagad, he's uh, the director of the Turtle Center, talked a little bit about the Pottawatomi community. And uh, Steve Spearson made a very interesting connection between crop, well, there's more than circles, crop events, and how they connect with some ancient sites and ancient glyphs. Uh, Carl Johannesson, who is now 93, he made the trip all the way from Oregon, and he's a darling, too. He wrote one of the most probably important books. And dang, if I could remember the name of it. Can you, Rick? It, it's I, about...
3: He it, has a couple, but I don't have either one of them in front of me. But uh, he's identified 480-odd different species that could not have gotten there without mankind intervening. And, in and the, sailing.
4: Right. And so he knows about the the marine travel of ancient times and how they would have accomplished that, and then things uh, from food to bacteria to parasites to uh, animals that are where they don't belong, and he's gotten evidence of that. So this was his last conference, and uh, he was delighted to be there, and our audience treated him so kindly and very much appreciated his wisdom And another fun thing that we've been doing since we moved to the uh, island uh, is to have a Friday night and a Saturday night panel discussion with all of the speakers who were on that day. And uh, anyway, I just think that, that, oh, and all of that is on this DVD as well as some cuts of our exhibit room. And uh, so you get a feel of what it's like there. But you don't quite get the warmth you have to come in person and we'd love Mm -hmm. to see you there our next event is october the first weekend four five six 2019 at the island uh, resort and uh, convention center and you can get that info i don't have many speakers lined up and they're not listed yet on the website just the basic basic data dates and things and so you could go to a website and we'll keep it up as things happen
2: okay And, uh, judy is uh the um uh part of Watomi uh cultural center in in the um, Potawatomi? Uh, yep yeah, uh uh part uh uh cultural center in the uh, um casino
4: no, it's a, a mile south of there
2: Oh, on Hannaville Road. Okay.
4: Not even a mile, not far away.
2: Okay. Uh, um, nice excuse little walk second. down the street.
1: Sure. Mark, um, for those who are listening, because the show does go out to the world, you might mention the state all of this is in, too.
4: <laughs> Michigan. This is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And the excitement here for people coming from all over, even from Europe, is the copper. That's why we've got Uh copper in the middle of our name, APSCopper.org, because of the how many? uh, It's the largest copper deposit in the world with the purest copper, and it's called the Keweenaw Range, and it's all the way from the the tip of our upper peninsula uh, on the line all the way into, well into Wisconsin, and it was formed very anciently when this earth was still creating itself with volcanoes and tectonic plates, and, and there was a magical combination of chemical gases that, that happened coming up from deep into the earth, and when they cooled, they formed this marvelous 99.9% pure copper. And why is copper important? Because... We think that much of the copper needed to build the Bronze Age, which was how many thousand years ago, Rick? Uh,
3: Typically, 3,500 to 4,000 years ago.
4: Thank that you. Was, I was don't was remember numbers.
3: <laughs> uh, and started that. Started 500.
4: Years ago. <laughs> that bronze is generally 90% copper and 10% zinc. And so it takes a lot of copper to make all that armor for all the horses and all the weapons and everything. And what Fred used to say when he was in Europe and he'd talk to people who study such things as we do, and they'd say, where did all the copper come from? And over here we say, where did all the copper go? So it kind of makes sense. And now that we have scientific testing that can even measure Uh, copper that has been heated and still get the proper analysis to it, there is solid evidence that our copper, Michigan, UP Copper, Upper Peninsula, is in Europe and China and India. (laughs) But it's a harder thing to get the evidence because that would mean that we would have to get permission from museums who are holding uh, Bronze Age things and let somebody
3: like analyze it <laughs> yeah but it it was you, typically it was tin to make bronze and zinc or lead would make brass and you, you find are all right. this I meant to say tin
4: you are right glad you're listening
3: but there were combinations of alloys of all descriptions with copper as the core mm-hmm. and you and you find those all those alloys throughout some of the ancient cultures. Um, yes, yeah. the Colossus of Rhodes was said to be 110 feet tall. I believe it was in the figure of a warrior, and it straddles the entrance to the harbor at Rhodes. And it mm-hmm. was built with the abandoned equipment of a a a an army that laid siege to Rhodes and could not follow through with it. So, yep. Where did all that
4: Rhodes. copper come from? And tin K- yeah. was. In England, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Uluboran shipwreck off of Turkey. How many years ago was that? But it the whole of this... How, how long, Rick? Uh,
3: I, it was carrying primarily Egyptian copper and glass. Mm-hmm. They, it they had tell
4: copper it. in the form of buns. They call it bun ingots, kind of like a hamburger bun size. And ox hides oxides they call them that because the copper is formed into this shape which looks like an ox hide stretched out to dry. And it was of a size that a man could carry and that would fit across the ribbed structure of a ship and it would help prevent it from shifting. And so and in this Billy... shipwreck off Turkey, there was many tons of those two types of copper.
3: Right, and the oxides are very consistent in both size and weight, because, of course, that's how they traded it, was by weight. Mm-hmm. And you find they found, I believe, it was two of them in the ship that had a corner that had been broken off, because in this form, it is brittle. And the metallurgists mm-hmm. at the time just break off whatever they needed from the oxide to mix whatever alloy they use.
4: Yes, and they could have been formed in two ways. One pounded into that shape, perhaps into a mold in stone, or it could have been heated and poured, which may have been happening down near the the mouth of the Mississippi, in a place called Poverty Point. And those, you could tell, had been heated because bubbles appear on the surface, where the pounded ones just look different. They look pounded. And what's very cool, on a wall in Egypt, was it Thebes? There is Uh, a picture of... Slaves carrying copper, some are carrying oxides, and some are carrying baskets of bun ingots. Isn't that interesting?
3: Yes, yeah. and it's also interesting that a human being can carry that much weight. Oh, yeah. It, the, the oxides are typically about 50 pounds. In fact, like I said, they're mm-hmm. very consistently at 50 pounds, which is about what you carry. That's why feed sacks are 50 pounds or... Mm-hmm. You know, whatever, that's what a man can carry. But the buns, they just kept piling them in the basket. And I, judging yeah. by the scale of, of those images, some of those baskets were four and five hundred pounds. It must and have been guess, symbolic <laughs> Yeah, and the other thing, and not to, not to distract too much, but that wreck, that shipwreck, also had all this glass, and it is cobalt blue glass. Hmm. Nobody could figure out where they got the cobalt. And there are two types of copper on that ship. One of them has been smelted and had some kind of flux used to separate all of the stuff from it, which means, of course, it wasn't Michigan copper, because Michigan copper has none of that stuff in It, it. It's pure. Right. So the other and it's still blister copper, but it has had all of the impurities removed by some fluxing process. Mm-hmm. And one of the impurities that does appear in that little bit of copper that does appear in Egypt is, well, cobalt. And the flux ah. that they would use to remove it was silica sand. So mm-hmm. that's where the glass came from. Right. And
4: where did the, And they had to add the blue from the cobalt yeah,
3: it, to make it glass blue. Yeah. So that's just an aside. Sorry to jump in there with it's, that. But it's and an it's interesting quite
4: toxic time. for people handling making blue glass. They probably had short lives.
3: They probably had pretty short lives anyway. You're but, right. yes,
2: yeah. You're carrying all <laughs> uh, that uh, crap. <laughs> you know, uh, Rick, is the scientific community... Uh, becoming more uh, a- accepting of all this transatlantic uh, commerce uh, w- with the, com- uh, the the copper trade.
3: Wow, that's a tough question. That's almost like saying, "Is are all scientists behind global warming?" <laughs>
4: uh, we better not go there.
3: Pretty spotty, pretty spotty on how much the scientific community accepts of how widespread the trade network was, how intense the trade was, uh, what all the commodities were, and we really don't have a clue. We only know a few. Um, But there are individual scientists within the overall community who are more accepting than others. Uh, They don't write many papers about it, though, because it'll never be published anyway.
4: Well, they would lose their jobs. It's Mostly we, we get the oldsters after they've retired from their university or state positions because if they were to proclaim these things while they were working, they would lose their jobs. They're still that narrow in in the uh, the old system. But we do have television now, and we've got shows that are presenting these things, and they're very popular with people. I mean, I'm in the paper doll business, and I get my customers on the phone, and and I might be thinking about AAPS and and the conference, and I said, oh, I have to take my archaeology hat off and put my paper doll hat on, and then my customers will start asking me. And it's like they're so interested, and they say, oh, my favorite shows are the on the History Channel, and we can just talk about it. So, it is becoming more public, more popularly accepted, even if not among the the, um, people who are still working in universities and state offices.
3: Yep, agreed. I found it pretty interesting recently. um, I had occasion to correspond with someone who works at an archaeological uh, museum slash laboratory about a particular artifact, and they were very excited that I was interested in this artifact. Until they found out what kind of research I did, mm-hmm. and then the communication. So.
4: They're afraid of it.
3: They are afraid of it. They had the artifact. Mhm. <laughs> and they they don't want to know what I think of it. Apparently.
5: Mhm.
4: Yeah, the old guard. It's hard to let go, but that goes way back, and I'm sure you know the story of it too, with Colonel Powell. The. Uh, pre-Smithsonian or what years was that when Powell was out there being sort of an amateur professional archaeologist for the government well
3: he, he was an amateur professional geologist first in geologist. during the Civil War he lost an arm at I believe it was Shiloh um, fighting for the Union he was an artillery officer uh, he, his retirement was actually as a major although he was recommended for a um, then in 1868, he and a canoe went down the Colorado River alone, mm-hmm. and no one had ever done that before. And when he got back, the people who sponsored him, because even back there, the Caravans had sponsored him, um, they said, why didn't you take a photographer with you? And he said, okay, will do it again. And in 1870, he did it again with photographers and other folks along for the ride. And it made him instantly famous the first time he was secretly famous then he was mm-hmm. and then in 1881 I believe it was 1879 I believe it was, he was appointed as the second director of the USGS United States Geological hmm. in 1889 after he had written the proposal um To form it, he became the direct first director of the Bureau of Ethnology for the Smithsonian Institution. Mm -hmm. And for a while, both had he was both SGS and he was Bureau of Ethnology. Now, in his early career, he learned that if you can get it in writing and get it published, it becomes the word. It is the word. It is the dogma, and that's still true today.
4: But, but where does that? Okay, go ahead, hon.
3: But he, he in, in having control over where the railroads went, because that was US, one of the USGS roles, and having mm-hmm. control, at least knowledge of where all the archaeological sites were, he could have them dug up by somebody else. He had things destroyed deliberately. That's not just a contention. I can That's say right.
4: But to say why, we need to go back some more years. The founding of this country, and when the people came here, and met the natives, who they declared were savages, even though most of them were not—maybe none of them were. Some of them were fighters, uh, but manifest destiny took place, and it has a biblical foundation. It has um, has a, a Darwinian foundation. But in order for them to justify themselves to come in here and take over lands, slaughter populations, poison them with disease, they had to consider them savages. It was not just a firing offense, I mean, to lose one's job, but it could be even a jail offense. If somebody were to find evidence that Native Americans had a written language, they could find it on Iraq, they could find it on on birch bark, but if they wrote a paper on it or put it on display in a national museum, there would be big trouble for the
3: right. person who had Paul
4: presented it. Powell. And so referred
3: to that as a followed that and line, mm-hmm.
4: And he drew a line in the sand that said anything before Columbus is Native American and that's that. And this is why it is so hard to get past Beyond Columbus, and say people were here. People were here from all over the world.
3: And yeah, H2As. well, but there is a purely political reason that that mm-hmm.
4: happened. Political and, and financial.
3: Is, well, yeah, those two are inseparable. That's just <laughs> politics can't run without money. That's but right. before Columbus. Anybody who got here, if they were Christian from a Christian nation, had any connection to the Christian world, that would negate Columbus's claim, which, by the way, he never set foot on or claimed North America.
5: <laughs> That's
3: um, right. But uh, it goes back to a what they call a uh, papal bull, and it was entitled Terra Nullis, Empty Land, and it was from, I believe, fifty three. And it said, if you find a land that is devoid of Christianity, you may claim it. You may enslave anyone who is there and in, not Christian. You can mm-hmm. them you do whatever. You because well, they're not Christian.
4: Whatever you they're, want. They're
3: so, the whole legal system of claiming these lands goes back to almost 50 years before Columbus got here.
4: Oh, definitely.
3: Back to England,
4: France, depending on whoever had the power at any given space and time.
3: Right. It was mostly intended for African lands and even in the Far East because Portugal was headed that way in -hmm. a big way. Um, And of course, South America was um, repopulated first, long before North America, decades before North America. there are a number of accounts of quote unquote Viking, they're not really, they're Norse. Norse. Mm-hmm. Being in North America and settling and colonizing briefly in North America. Well, you know, as long as they're Viking, it doesn't matter. But if they're medieval Norse, then they're Catholic. Mm-hmm. And that throws out all those previous claims. So that's why they fight the the Norse repopulation of North America. They'll let you Vikings. Which kind of
4: brings us to the point, uh, one of the main points of our conferences is the evidences. The evidences of other cultures having been here. And Myron Payne has made a lifelong study of finding uh, the same words and the same meaning between old Norse and Algonquin languages. And Algonquin covers the broad territory. And he found hundreds of matching words. Now that's just Norse. Now we have DNA. DNA is showing us some very interesting things. Uh, the Cherokee Indians from the Appalachian areas, uh, not so much those who went west, but those that stayed in the east, show markers for Hebrew. They also have Hebrew Type structures. They have Hebrew symbols, though they didn't know they were because people forgot over the years. But uh, names, hmm? and names, sure. And some but, of their ceremony is similar. They build their their lodges in the very same proportions as the Hebrew temples, and that is even it, tabernacles, right? And even the Ojibwa here build their lodges in the same proportions and why is that and when Uh, our our indian friends first came to visit us our conference our native american were mostly ojibwa cousins and they came as an invitation uh, word of mouth and they were prepared to walk out and they just sat quietly and listened and they said if we had not been in harmony they would have left but what was so cool? I think it was Leek Pennington was showing some images, uh, writing of some sort on rocks, and he was connecting connecting it to Colbran, which is Wales, old yes. Colbran writing, and I was sitting up front because I need to signal my speakers and get them off stage when it's time and everything and. Mm-hmm. and I was interested to see the responses of our native friends, and and I would watch them and look at their faces and see them nodding. And I said, you can read that, can't you? And they said, yes, they can read a lot. There's a lot of symbols that they know, but they come from Hebrew. They come from Norse. They come from Wales. How is it that all of these cultures have language that's, mixed in with our natives.
2: Cool, huh? And And, and Ju- Judy, there, uh, Myron also discusses uh, some of the uh, native um, religious hi- history has stories similar to, uh, like, uh, that that's Biblical, around what like the well, well uh, there is also uh, uh su- suggests that uh that there is a native uh story that is very similar to uh uh Mary the mother of Jesus as well mm-hmm. uh, that's on his uh, um, you know, frozen trail uh, you know, we spoke about that one time mm-hmm. uh uh you know the so, you know, you just kind of have to wonder about that connection as well. Well, on that sure. Point, you know,
4: The Sure. There are many oh, matching oh, stories. And you go to Joseph Campbell, who was studying that many years ago, about the stories having a very similar base in many cultures all over the world.
3: Well, statuary, too. I mean, the stat, the, there's a Madonna oh, yeah. in from... There's a Madonna and child from what they call the man site here in Indiana. There's one in Arkansas. There was one I believe there was one in central Wisconsin, but I'd have to I'd have to check And they're they're so similar to some of the European Madonna and Child statuary that
5: mm-hmm.
3: it's uh, it's a little too much of a stretch to call it a coincidence. mm
4: mm-hmm. Well coincidence means coincidence, then then it makes yes. more sense.
3: Yeah, they're certainly contemporary. We'll go with that one for sure. Nobody will argue against that one.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: You know, we don't make any big, fat claims. What we mostly do at conference and our speakers do, too, is they ask questions. They'll put the data, they'll put the evidences before you and kind of let you stir that up in your mind and see what it comes to, see what kind of conclusions we come to ourselves. So nothing is Feels like it's crammed down, does it, Rick? We don't don't push anything. We just present yeah, uh, present evidence.
3: And and when a speaker is done, sometimes before they're done, someone in the audience will have something to contribute or to you know uh, contradict if they want to. And, and we they do them. that in
4: a nice way.
3: Yeah. And, and like I said, and we let them. We we don't throw anybody out.
4: Um, <laughs> right. We never have.
3: But getting back to the whole uh language and symbology parts of it, I I'll if you want, Judy, I'll do that in the next conference. Um, they all these cultures had their own language and their own symbology and their own means of communication and their own numerical systems and they mm-hmm. and-
4: there's another thing
3: very sophisticated mathematics, and it's embedded in a great many of the earthworks.
4: Yes. Very complex, very oh, intelligent.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, and like I said at the end of my presentation, who did all this first? I really don't care. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really That's don't not
4: care. a contest.
3: <laughs> no, it went both ways. I mean, the, right. the European... And Africans and Chinese all learn things from the Americans, and vice versa
4: yes, and i here we are gathering all this evidence about people from from China, india uh, Europe in uh all those places that came here and left their evidences. Uh, some stayed, some left their DNA and went back home. Uh, some left bits of their culture, but I would love to learn more about our natives having gone elsewhere. Now, one speaker touched on that, but then she didn't go very far with it, uh, that we had some natives who spent some time in China, and they were the Sauk Indians, S-A-U-K, Sauk and Fox Indians, who apparently had left some very considerable uh, evidences in an area, I can't tell you where, in China. But... uh, I wish she had proceeded with that some more because I find that very fascinating.
3: Oh, indeed. I, I believe you're talking about uh, uh, the Nicholas research, correct? Mm,
4: right? Well, Joel Price. Nick- but,
3: yeah, oh, oh, oh diff- yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah, she had a difficult time getting her ideas
2: across. But, yeah, a little uh, bit, but
3: the it's a difficult topic
2: yeah we with you know from the confer- the m e s conference from a few years ago we attended uh, uh you know, the nicholases had that gr- great uh, uh you know, presentation that, you know, presenting convincing evidence that the chinese were mm-hmm. in the like i uh, was it like the cahokia area in the 15th even, up, up Chicago, yep. even up towards Chicago, even right. It was far farther north. You're, you're,
3: you're Alton, right, Judy. Actually, Alton is where they left their giant painting. But um, they also, according to Laura's research, brought smallpox as a means of warfare. hmm and, and kind of put the quietus to, I don't know, fifteen, twenty million people. Yeah. Well, that was
4: done. Even our uh, Potawatomi friends, uh, when that was an amalgamation of three tribes, and they called it the three fires, the Ojibwa, the Odawa, and Ho-Chunk, and they became the Potawatomi. Maybe it wasn't Ho-Chunk. What was the third one? Ojibwa. uh, I I probably have this wrong. Ojibwa, Odawa, and... And, and anyway, the three fires, but the part of the story of the people who eventually became the Hanneville community who owned that casino, uh, they were much, much larger, but they got a gift from some missionaries that had scabs in it, and it killed more than half of their people and I think they were down to twelve families, maybe fourteen families, and that's who is pretty much is the foundation of their community today and yet as horrible as that was another missionary couple came who were kind and loving and helped them recover and helped them restore uh, who they were again and the wife's name was hannah hence the name hannahville and so their community is named after a, a white missionary woman so you can see as hateful as some whites were others were just as kind, and so it goes both ways. You know, we got good people, and we got yeah. bad people everywhere.
3: So, the uh, the upshot of the Nicholas research is that they've been invited to um, China mm-hmm. to talk about how Who China. Uh, the
2: Nicholas. Mark and Lori. Nicholas? Nicholas.
3: Mm-hmm. And they've, uh, I forget, do you, Mark, do you recall what the Chinese professor's name is? Is it Lee? Lee something, I believe.
2: I I, I, I don't remember.
3: But he has uh, arranged for them to present in uh, two, or, two or three different
2: Excellent. events.
3: Excellent. Good for them. Yeah, yeah and well, they uh, she, she reads Mandarin and uh, Gothic Mandarin. Gothic? She sight reads it. <laughs> yes, that wow. means it's like five hundred old. So all thirty-eight hundred characters of its alphabet. <laughs> what, and you
2: know, she. she uh, what's on the Do you remember what's on? There's like a. There was a uh, dragon. Uh, mm-hmm. th- it was like a, right. a, a we, huge painting uh, on mm-hmm. a rock outcropping along the river, or someplace uh, some, some right. like we that. Were told the
3: for decades or a century, century and a half, anyway, that it was had been called the Piazzol bird. Piasa oh
4: bird. yes, Piasa when, or Piasa. when
3: Mark and Lori started researching it, they found out that the only description before it was destroyed said it was two intertwined dragons, intertwined in a very specific way. And on their first trip to China, they found its uh, identical twin as an arch in a very specific city, the one where that fleet returned to. So
4: someone had done some sketches and made an engraving of it so we do have that as some kind of pictorial evidence that that did it
3: yeah, they had found one, one surviving image of it uh, I a photographic
4: seen it or, or was it engraving
3: no actually it was an oil painting, uh, a painting. perhaps a uh, it was a painting I don't, don't recall immediately mm-hmm.
4: Well, somebody but did it get
3: it down. The, base of the cliff. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. The reason that we can't go look at it today, there is a recreation further upriver. The reason we can't go look at the original today is because it was deliberately destroyed yeah. by the sponsors of Major Powell.
4: <sighs> yep, we hear that story too many times to make us cry, doesn't it? Even today, yeah. they're still doing it
3: yes indeed they are
4: Mm -hmm. and so now we have photography one question that was asked oh no one of our speakers had said that he was talking to a very wise professor and he was saying you know what happens in our far distant future with all of the discoveries that we are making now of our ancient past how do we preserve it uh, digital and magnetic media that can fail in a minute with the uh, with the wrong influence, moisture, magnetism. Uh, paper can burn, get ruined in water. What can we do to preserve our current and our past history? And the professor said, "Put it on stone."
5: Or where,
4: <laughs> right back around again, stone. It is the most lasting, which is kind of sad.
3: Well, yes and no, but you know um it's it's written in stone, I guess around for right? a while It's, it's <laughs> concrete evidence, but concrete it evidence is. will degrade over five hundred years or so. Roman concrete seems to last longer than any of ours.
4: yes, it's made differently, and look at the the concrete different. that Sam Osmanagic is finding there in bosnia it's been analyzed to be superior to any cement concrete that is made today or even in the last couple hundred years I mean, this concrete goes back perhaps 30 or 40,000 years because of yep. some wood that, wood bracings that they had, had analyzed in several independent labs and they put it way back way before Egypt
3: oh yeah Egypt way pyramids. before Go back. Happy. and but, there's another uh, one there's
4: just a little sample of a cover up right there when Hawass, the Egyptian historian, sent his people there to look at the Bosnian pyramids, they said, oh, my, yes, this is real. These, these, It's a step pyramid that they're slowly uncovering. This is man-made structures. There's huge, huge, hewn stones that, I don't know how they moved them. Same question happens in Egypt. But they said, oh, yes, this is a man-made structure. This is not a natural hill. Well, very shortly after they got back to Egypt, They became hills again. When you think of the tourism that those um, pyramids bring, it's millions, millions of dollars to Egypt. Mm -hmm. You can't have someplace else have the biggest pyramids. Or oldest. Yeah, biggest, oldest. Mm -hmm. Right. It comes right down to dollars again, doesn't it?
1: Well, but not only that, but he also has the the feature of the healing elements within the the air within oh, the, it, yes. within the tunnel. We love
4: that. We love that. So you've talked to and, Sam, huh?
1: Oh yeah, I've had him on the show. I I love him to pieces.
4: We do too. I've pulled him up as a model because he is he's just so quiet and keeps going forward no matter what (laughs) how many how many other archaeologists sign a paper and say that he's full of it and it's fake and it's just a natural hill he doesn't argue with them he just keeps plugging away doing his work finding his evidence but when he talked about the frequencies inside those tunnels and people being healed while we wow we love that
1: well, it's, well, it's it, not it.
4: only inside of it, it's the
1: pyramid itself is emitting a signal that they were able mm-hmm. to record and then yes. feed it back to the pyramid and it talked to itself. So, well, wow. but <laughs> He was the best interview I've ever done. He literally interviewed himself. It was like, and why you ask? Does this, this and this and this? And then he answers his own <laughs> question. <And laughs> it, was, it was amazing.
4: Well, well he showed he... photographs of a river. There is water under the pyramid uh-huh. on a river. And it, the river was all orbs. They had you could somebody was scooping their hands through it and I don't know if that what they could feel, but it was they were standing in it in this river of little white light balls just flowing right along. Amazing, as well as some floating about in the air,
2: lots of orbs everywhere. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Bar- Barbara, and, and, and you know, just to link what uh, Judy's talking about with you know, more Dr. Sam's I- information is, you know, there were the spheres uh, found throughout the town too. Oh sure. Oh,
1: the ceramic boulders, you mean that changed the water's yeah. direction?
2: Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's been but a while. Some, since.
4: See, some say they're natural, and some are natural because of the way that the broken ones have been flaking off and how they formed into such beautiful balls. But others are definitely made of a formed material, probably mm-hmm. cast.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so who has the technology? If uh, you know, the Bosnian pyramids. Say around twenty thousand years old. Well, who has that kind of technology to cast these perfect spheres? And you know, they're they've been buried for you know th- thousands of years, and they're just being like on Earth now. What? Uh, wh- who has that technology mm-hmm. a- at that time period?
1: Well, there they even found um, glyphs that were similar to but not hieroglyphs, and um, they they interpreted them too and um but but what did
4: you they know, say? I, so somebody interpreted. Uh,
1: yeah. Uh it was on one of the big ceramic things and basically and I'm gonna have to paraphrase because I you know, I, I don't have it in front of me, but basically it said that the tunnels are not filled um, we're going to have to be hunters and gatherers oh. until the Stargate opens.
4: Mm, interesting. Interesting. That was yeah, that, when, uh, it has, it, when Sam was showing us how they had to. I mean, it's taken thousands of people to remove all the rubble that had been crammed into all those tunnels.
5: Uh-huh.
4: And you wonder what were they? Who were they trying to keep out? But maybe what kind of secrets are they trying to keep in?
5: Yeah,
1: and and by the way, that was in his book on the pyramids in Bosnia. Uh, it was said far more beautifully than I was able to paraphrase it for you. But um, and and those pyramids do go back thirty, forty thousand years, and mm-hmm. uh, and unfortunately, That's before, a lot of the
4: before an ice age, so ice yeah. had come down over that and then it again. And what happened to the cultures? Did they go from a highly evolved society to mere survival and retreating in a technology and, and knowledge and then almost starting all over again?
1: Could be that I, I know that, he doesn't actually have permission to actually go into the pyramid itself. he's basically in the tunnels leading up to it but but there's a labyrinth of tunnels all all throughout that area mm-hmm. and during World war two um troops did hide in some mines, but they were definitely not yep. these tunnels and ah. they're doing everything they can to convince people that he's he's crazy and
4: and sure. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, when you well, we have been pictures, called that, you... haven't we, Rick? <laughs>
5: <laughs> we Recently, in that. I had
1: a few <laughs> few few of those barbs have been thrown my way too. But um, I think what what it was fascinating was that people with arthritis who went to volunteer and help clear found that their arthritis was cured, and people with high blood pressure and people with
4: and so cancer. many other
1: ailments, yeah. yeah. And and he's got it all documented and of course people will poo poo it, but I have a feeling, you know, the the guy from Egypt, didn't he lose his job?
4: Oh, he got it back again.
1: Oh yeah, geez. Politics. But but mm-hmm. um I know that that one or two of those Egyptian guys that came and said yes it's a pyramid, they lost their jobs. Yeah. Yep,
4: happens there too. Happens in Canada. I don't know about Europe. They seem to be a little bit more open to the crossing over back and forth in old ancient times. Uh, but they still they well, have their limitations too.
1: Well, Egypt has for for centuries, hundreds and hundreds of years, been the 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 crowning jewel of antiquity, and and to have other places move ahead of them is so far out of their frame of reference that they just can't stand it hmm
4: they've been top dog for too long yeah but they and also have
1: tunnels under the Giza Plateau that they aren't talking about certainly.
4: too. So. and they found water under the mm-hmm. pyramids which apparently is happening all over the world they're finding water
5: and well under pyramids
3: way. finding water under pyramids specifically mm-hmm. but
4: under pyramids Well, that person who built his pyramid house outside of Chicago, he was building the house and water came. And then they had to create kind of a moat and a bridge pass effect because he built the pyramid and the water came unexpectedly. Pyramids
1: pyramids do have energetic power. I mean, they can sharpen razor blades and they can enhance seeds. I I can't, uh, you know... It's not too great a reach to say that they could attract water either.
4: I have got a four-foot-high copper pyramid standing right in front of my face here in the living room
5: that we <laughs> bought at uh,
4: one of Marta's uh, copper, uh, not copper, a uh, pyramid conference a couple of years uh-huh. ago.
2: Yeah, and, um, you know, J- Judy, there, there's the emergence of the... Um, uh, you know really ancient uh, dates for uh, Gunung pedang in well, sure. uh, uh, like uh, eight uh, southeastern asia and
3: in Indo- I, I,
2: I, 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 Indonesia. Right, I, actually yeah, yeah i i'm i'm sorry I said the wrong place but um you know that that would you know be going back to you know the deep antiquity that is contemporary with um, uh, The Bosnian Pyramid
4: Do you Can it's you name a date Actually
3: what? it's younger yeah, the, I
4: think uh, it's uh, Lee younger than
3: mm-hmm. Go
5: ahead
3: Lee Pennington went over there and he talked to some of the experts And he actually made a, a Documentary about it Their dates, carbon dating Or G'dang Padung. Um, they have two levels of dating and the oldest i believe he said was 25,000 years old
4: that's sounds about some right newer, i remember
3: newer stuff right on top but the oldest stuff is some 25,000 years old which would still make it younger by considerably younger than sam's bosnian pyramids
4: sure well and then that's a water country just imagine what's off those islands underwater when ocean yeah. levels were lower, civilizations lived there. And
3: well, yeah, uh, like but, you our know, friends but,
4: from Noble Odyssey here who study uh, the underwaters of the Great Lakes and are finding wonderful things, they said that the future of our archaeology and our knowing who we are and our, of our ancient past is underwater.
3: Oh, well, absolutely. As one example, during the Ice Age, Florida, what is now Florida, was larger than Texas mm. <laughs> quite a bit larger than Texas, but today it's under you know typically seven or eight feet of water, but if you get out to the continental uh, shelf and out it's six hundred eighteen feet, then that's where the ocean used to be
4: right, right, yeah, you know, one theory is that that large continental shelf that that is the edge of a tectonic late that when, if you think that there was a continent of Atlantis it was uh, located where the Atlantic Ocean is now and then western it would have been Mu or Lemuria but one theory that I read about and it seemed to make sense, it was when the earth shook and the plates broke again, is it that one dropped and kind of slid under the other, so there's a bit of remains on our eastern seaboard and maybe that shelf is part of of the plate that got sort of shoved under the plate that is the eastern part of of North America I don't know I just read it and it sort of was a good idea to think about
3: Yeah, but we also have some very, not just credible, very in-your-face evidence of places uh, for instance uh, off the southern coast of Japan off the southern coast of India Oh yeah and look On, at the stone remains of something that has been underwater for 95 years yeah
4: large structures i mean man built structures way
1: are yeah, they're, <laughs> they're still trying to say that, that you know it's it's natural but i don't believe it's natural at all <laughs> the
3: steps sculptures those are pretty much giveaways
2: <laughs> yeah in the right angles Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah The turtles
5: (laughs) Yeah Yeah
4: Like like Lee Pennington Said that the the North Americans Have the smartest glaciers Of any place (laughs) else (laughs) in the world Because (laughs) they can take Three stones And then gently place a very large Stone on top of it And then go on its merry way (laughs)
2: And it's perfectly yeah. balanced too.
4: Sure, balanced yeah. stones, dolmens. It's funny. The smartest glaciers.
1: Now, are and, there? And I know there are t- there are a ton of balanced stones here in the Northeast. But are they all over the world, or is it just yes. in this area? Okay. Oh, oh I no. Know. There,
5: there
3: are, as one example, Korea, the Korean Peninsula has over fifteen thousand of them. Well, I've, I've seen
4: yeah. it and, and ballast stones. Yes. There's even a park. I oh, seems it. like I came across a park of stones, ballast stones and dolmens and things.
1: There's one yes, in the but, Chicago. Oh. It, it, there's one a singing stone where you hit it and it sings.
4: In, in Chicago? In Chicago. Did you say? Yeah, in, around Chicago. Yeah. Must be it's, metallic. Maybe no, meteoric. It's, it, it's no, rock. it's stone.
3: Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's pure stone. with there's a cracked one in, uh, I believe it's in Vermont, White Mountains area, that it, mm. it had split, and it's like 12 feet in diameter. Do you know about that one, Barbara?
1: No, I don't. The only one I knew about was, I know that the lady that was talking about it had watched, the, you know, Secrets of the Stones, and she asked if I had ever heard of the Singing Stones, and I said, no. <laughs> and um I, we never got a chance to get out there but i mm-hmm. guess it's in a park and you can hit it and and it, it's but you know it sings. in in south africa um i forget in the tip of south africa they have singing stones as well that mm-hmm. that chime the and mm-hmm. i don't
4: know why but they do we had a speaker from south africa one time and he showed us some wonderful mysteries, and he had made friends of a really old shaman down there who told him some very interesting things. The son, oh shoot, I can't remember his name now. Were you at that Andy? conference, Rick?
3: Pardon? I was. I don't remember his name. Uh, Lapini. he was, was also a,
1: uh, oh, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I um, had him on the show.
5: Yeah.
3: He. Uh, yeah. he had also- he had a couple slides of aerial photography before Google Earth was, you know, fully in place. Sure. And today we know that there are settlements, or at least evidence of settlements, in that area that are 130,000 years old. And mm-hmm. you can still see the evidence, not only in the Google Earth, but also aerial photography. And he was talking mm-hmm. about that uh, 10 years ago or so. <laughs>
4: Yeah, right, it
5: was, he was very. Was it D- leading Dean
4: Laprini. Le- yeah. Laprini, Le- yes, Dean. Dean Laprini. Yeah, T- and B R I N I.
1: They've got um, circles of stones that are older than Stonehenge that they've been yeah. able to um, record the energy that, that they talk to themselves. They send energy back and forth. Wow. Yeah, are no, stupid
4: it was... these days. You know, we have gotten so far away of our spiritual sides that I don't know if we, I, I think we can retrieve it, but we're so f- full of distractions and physical material things that our spiritual aspects have been a bit subdued.
5: Indeed. Oh, yeah, but
4: I think it's coming, it's coming around
1: full circle. I mean... The spiritual mm-hmm. aspect of all of this stuff, until the spiritual comes into the scientific and they balance out, you know, we're not going
4: anywhere. Right, right. It has to come. And, you know, I think, don't you feel something wonderful, Rick, when when we've completed a conference and, we're, and our Indians are there closing the thing, and just like a warm blanket comes over all of us, and, and they say, Bejig which is one, and that we are we are creating a new frequency there. We're creating a, a grounding. We're creating a higher frequency at the same time. And it is one of harmony and love.
3: Well, and certainly, is, certainly working for Bruce this year, I'll say that. I've never seen him happier.
4: Isn't he, darling? Yep. Yep. You know, those so guys, the, they've traveled the world. They've, they've worked with shamans all over the world, and they bring the, the peace fire with them. And uh, it, they speak in a a little bit,
5: um,
4: you know, imperfect grammar style, but it, it suits them, and they're so sweet, so sincere, and so wise. And they have so much to bring.
3: Well, it's the, one of the biggest reasons I enjoy being there not presenting there not even listening there is the camaraderie of being there
4: thank um, you yep that's good
3: I, I mean I enjoy all those other things um, this year I almost paid for my trip selling books almost hey, hey. But
5: <laughs> you know
4: everybody said it was their best sales ever Wayne too better than the, any event that he's done he goes all over the place
3: yeah, he goes. He, he does go pretty much all but over. You the brought continent.
4: some new people up on in your. Uh, what did you call yourselves, van rats? <laughs> it's van 12 rats. people yeah. in the... <laughs> had
3: a fifteen-passenger van, put twelve people in all their luggage plus a guitar. Um,
4: <laughs> and you thought you'd go home lighter because you sold all your books, but then people bought a lot of books, and I bet you did not go back lighter.
3: No, I also bought a lot of stuff. <laughs>
5: and you did. <said,
3: laughs> But it was the idea of having a group of people of that size. Of course, it has its own, you know, uh, problems. But we we all have our own um, views, not just of the conference stuff, but of everything, of our trip, mm-hmm. of what we going up there. And uh, we had little side trips. We went to one of the ancient cop's mines. And we mm-hmm. went to a different Where they had a uh, A 32 foot dug out canoe That's almost all still there And it also has iron rods Holding it together That were there when they found it In 1961 or whatever it was How, how,
2: um, how old's the canoe? Oh no Carbon dating
3: Yeah the carbon dating uh, Lee couldn't remember And we couldn't find anything At, at the casino that said it but he had talked to one of the researchers, and it was either dated to 1200 A.D. or it was dated to being 1200 years old, which is how carbon dates usually are read. But it has iron support rods and oral locks on it. Mm. That, that's kind of an anachronism.
5: <laughs> it,
4: it, it's not boring, is it, Rick? And
3: No, it's always Robert, challenging, I mean, And the
4: more you learn, the more you know you don't know.
3: That's exactly
5: right. But
1: that's the adventure. It's a journey. And, and, you know, kids in school think, well, I've been through the book, I've learned it, and that's it, and they close the book. (laughs) And it's not until you get to be older that you realize that there's a library out there. There's more books than you can possibly ever, you know, ingest. And
4: children, have that natural curiosity too. They want to know about lots of things. When people ask me, you know, who comes to your conferences? And I said, people of intelligence and curiosity. They don't need to have a special interest in archaeology. Look how broad we are. We're, we're not just about archaeology, we're about life, and we're about history, and we're about sharing about people. so much. And so, indeed, isn't that right? People of intelligence and curiosity.
0: Every one of them in
4: our, yeah a lot of talent A lot of talent in those audiences
3: We have people who can Recite nursery rhymes Backwards
4: and <laughs> You and I <laughs> Yeah We have a couple people
3: do. Uh, We have incredible storytellers Lee Pennington being Near the t- at He's or near professional. the professional
4: He's like a, the Kentucky State storyteller <laughs> And well, you guys well, yeah.
1: You you guys the the intro to the show is uh done by Ken Quiethawk, who is a native storyteller.
4: Ah, lovely voice. Yes.
1: Ah, yes. <laughs> yes, I he he happily is a friend and I I asked him to record it for me and he did. He and his wife go all over doing the storytelling. I'm surprised nice. you haven't run across
4: him. No, I have not. What's uh they their is website is native try yeah, um, go ahead. Their
1: website is native dot com.
4: Ah, I will look. Okie doke. Rick, are we chewing way into your topic for the night? I better shut my mouth and let you get on with it.
3: Oh no, no, <laughs> I'm good. Um, we can go about anywhere in this. I've steered them so many different directions in my previous appearance.
2: Yeah, but I we had to I, find
3: a map to get home.
2: Well, I I I have a question that uh Judy brought up about uh you know the what's being discovered in the Great Lakes with uh, you know uh you know you can have you know personal submarines now um to uh you know get get into the smaller uh bays is they are being found on the ancient uh, you know shoreline uh, uh structures you hear a little bit about that uh you was know, a pyramid in uh you know Lake Superior or you
3: know, Rock Lake uh, are uh, you talking about the it,
2: one at Rock Lake there's some in yeah, Rock yeah, Lake yeah, that one. Yeah, and then there's, is there, there's what
4: some are calling a Stonehenge, that's yeah. on the uh, northern, uh, northwestern coast of the lower peninsula, and they're being very, very secretive about it because they don't want it destroyed.
2: You know, uh, do you? Are, are you well, we hearing asked the anything? Question. Since you're there? okay.
4: Somebody asked the question of the people who run Noble Odyssey why aren't you doing this and why aren't you doing that and why don't you have the little submarine that you just talked about? And they said, money. It's very expensive to do archaeological research underwater, much more so than on land. And funding, you know, that's well, really what it's all about. That's the limitation.
3: Well, it's not the only limitation anymore. No? There's also what they call admiralty law. And- uh-huh. Governments want a piece of the action. If you find anything, every government on the planet is going to find a way to lay a claim to it. Just like the French, well, the French have reclaimed the 1702 ship that was found in Lake Michigan. It's like uh, really uh,
4: our ship. <laughs>
3: yeah, uh, as one example. And if you go, and I'm not talking just treasure hunting here. I'm talking archaeology as well.
4: Sure.
3: Well, we don't need to
4: remove anything. We we just look at it, photograph it, analyze it, measure it,
5: uh, and get some. Hmm?
3: It's dangerous to their narratives.
5: Mhm.
3: Truth is dangerous.
4: Still is, unfortunately.
3: Yeah. Now back to what Mark was saying about what are they finding? Everything. When I say they, it's it's almost never. Uh, state-sponsored archaeologists who find the stuff initially. That's who goes in and finishes it. That's
4: right. That's right. Well, look at that land bridge that's just under the water between the thumb and Canada. Do you know what I mean by the thumb? Lower Michigan is shaped like a mitten with the thumb Uh to the east. And that, uh, from the bumpity-out part of the thumb, to canadas not a very long distance i don't know how many miles but there's a forest across there in the water which they uh-huh. figure when water levels were lower when the glaciers were coming and going and pulling water out and and lake levels were very low that uh, that was a regular pathway across a roadway
3: oh oh yeah well since you brought that one up um <laughs> I will now steer this towards my latest article for Ancient American Magazine, because
5: Goody. that's what
3: I'm talking about.
5: <laughs>
3: the ancient lake levels varied up and down and back and forth and here and there and yon. But we have pretty good dates of when the ice receded the first time mm-hmm. and the second time with the younger Dryas effects. At 7,500 years before present is when Kiwanaw Peninsula became ice-free. 7, how many years?
4: 7,500? 7,
3: 7,500. Yeah. Guess when the copper age started in Europe.
4: <laughs> About 7, the same time? About the same time.
3: the same time, yes. And, and you can and find it in the ice. how did they
4: find? How did they know that they had copper here?
3: How did they know to dig down 20 feet in a very specific spot to get copper? Didn't That's need to
4: dig, question. though, because the glaciers had dropped so much copper, most of it was taken right off the surface.
3: Well, most of it was, but they still dug. I mean, you yeah. can go find the ancient mines. You, in fact, the entire modern mining industry is, mining is, based, is on based on one particular spot particular where it's like a hundred thousand different timbers. I'm getting feedback.
5: Here.
4: Yeah, I missed a couple of words. I don't know if, if you other people are hearing what Rick is saying fully.
3: Anyway, one of the ancient mines, yeah, one of the ancient mines was the first ancient mine was discovered by people coming along and finding the hammerstones that they used to beat the rock, beat the copper out of the rock. But mm-hmm. they found a hundred thousand of them around this one particular hole.
4: On Isle Royale.
3: No, that one was in upper. It was in. It Keweenaw? wasn't even on the Keweenaw. It was in the upper peninsula, but not on the Keweenaw.
4: Maybe toward Ontonagon. Uh,
3: Yes, it was. Very close to Ontonagon, in fact. Anyway, that particular mine, ancient mine, started the entire modern copper industry of Michigan copper. So the, the lake levels that were changing with and without the ice were also changing the water levels of rivers and lakes and whatnot, of it draining off as it melted. So at a very specific point where what they call a continental divide, the water that runs into the mm-hmm. Great Lakes versus the water that runs into the Ohio and Mississippi Valleys mm-hmm. is is currently pretty much going across northern Indiana up through Ohio and into New York. But the the upshot of this is four thousand years ago. The water levels were at the right place where you could canoe from Isle Royal to the Ohio River. Right. And that, well, I had I believe, done a chart
4: one time by looking at at uh, just I guess Google Maps, and you could just see by the depressions in the land where rivers would have been, whether they're there now or not. But there was perfect uh, accesses between lake superior into lake michigan two different major ones one of them was the Autrain river which now runs two directions so there was a glacial rebound about one third of the way south and and now the river runs into lake superior and into lake michigan but at one point it just went south and it was a major waterway
5: Right
3: Indeed. Into, from
4: Lake Superior to Lake Michigan. That's the shortest space across the Upper Peninsula.
3: Yeah, but that wasn't the, as far as you could go. And the other thing is, at Sault Ste. Marie 4,000 years ago, there were no rapids. It was a placid, just nice one canoeing. Level. One, one level. level
4: no higher. locks needed.
3: Correct. And and you could literally, you could canoe from Isle Royal. All the way to poverty point.
5: Uh-huh.
3: And, and Rick... Yep, um, and
4: and no carrying yeah. of canoes full of copper anywhere.
2: It just... Right. Yeah, uh, uh, and, Rick, we might need to explain to um, some of the audience members uh, what poverty point was, the importance of... This um, Why Archaeological that? site in Louisiana Yeah, yeah. go for and it, it
3: Rick. uh It has a series of earthen earthworks, I guess would be the right way to describe it. They are concentric circular earthworks with pathways cut across them um, At one time there were seven rings and it has been eroded substantially by the Mississippi River It is dated to approximately 3000 B.C. They've recovered over 4 million artifacts, um, including copper ingots and copper wares that were refined and or made there using copper that was found both at Isle Royal and even some from Nova Scotia. They also had river pearls, obsidian from Yellowstone, um, Wears from all over this continent And maybe a couple of others And yet it is not even The oldest mound in Louisiana At 3000 Uh
4: Now when that was Full circle how many people Might have lived and worked there
3: We don't really know but uh, We have We have some prognostication Of minimum and maximum If there are four Yes probably tens of thousands Mm. Uh, and it varied over its, you know, its entire lifetime because it, we believe, um, and some of the best work to date uh, has been done by Jay Wakefield and uh, Brandon Hurd and um, wow. Um,
4: There's a fellow who lives down that way and I can't grab his name and he was doing some study on, Yes. You almost had it, huh? Yeah. But he said that he had found on Google Earth, uh, I don't know if it was LIDAR or if the shadows were just right, but he found much of the other part, the missing part of that on the other side of a a waterway that had cut through. And he intended to get that and use it in a presentation in a few weeks. But dang, he didn't save it when he found it. And when he went back to get it, it had been disappeared.
3: It had been bulldozed, yes.
4: No, not bulldozed. I mean, disappeared from from the Google Earth mapping. They make things disappear, you know.
3: Oh, yeah, I know. The the great thing about Google Earth, though, is you can go find the images that were there 10 years ago. You can go Uh, find the old.
4: Well, what was funny, I just found today, and I was going around uh, looking in the water around the U.S. a few years ago, I I spent a couple of days just traveling in the water via Google Earth, and I found this big, I don't know, pattern between uh, Baja Peninsula and Mexico. And I had uh, made a little book of the pictures that I had gathered, and I showed it to people at our conference. And there happened to have been five pilots, people who flew uh small planes or had been flying military, but they all looked at it, and they said, that's an airport, and I just found it's there. I, when I looked a, a couple of years ago, it was gone, so maybe it was just like you said, it's a matter of when did they take the pictures, but you could see it now, and if you just look in that between Baja and Mexico, you can find it, and it's a 70-mile long, looks very much like an airport in the water. oh. Who, what yes, needs to uh, land on a seventy-mile long strip?
3: I don't know. The space shuttle needed three miles, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, Judy, uh,
2: do, do you think that was an ancient canal being seventy miles long?
4: Uh, no, it has turnarounds in it. If you look at an airport and and the way that the they go some perpendicular to one another and summit angles they're coming and going it's the way that they need to move planes about but look at it and you'll be surprised
3: i will be checking that out
4: i also you can find i did a a little slideshow on slideshare.net slideshare.net and i called it underwater mysteries and you could look under my name judy m johnson And because I couldn't figure out how to get two different accounts there, I've got paper dolls and archaeology under the same, (laughs) my same uh, uh, area.
2: You're just eclectic. Yeah, (laughs)
4: right. (laughs) So anyway, that's where I've got my underwater mystery show. And there's somebody else that's got underwater mystery title, but not with my name.
5: There are so so many
3: I love Google Earth. I, I love all parts of Google Earth, but you know that's the, fun. <laughs> it is. It's also uh, so easy to while you're looking at this map of the Earth to become entirely engrossed and be lost, knowing exactly where you are, you still don't know what you're looking at. Right. As an example, just today, a uh, correspondent. In fact, one of the guys who was at the conference with us. Uh, Sent me an email and said Hey I think I found something Want me to send you some pictures of these Earthen walls I found I said yes I love pictures (laughs) So while he was getting his pictures Together I went on Google Earth And looked where he was talking about And you can still see traces Of these earthen walls on these hills
4: Where where
3: In Louisville Kentucky
4: In Louisville
3: I've seen that in Louisville They're still there In the city Okay it's in one of the hills Within Louisville but it's still there And he found it on a map From 1912 And then he also went and got Photographs and video But uh, Google Earth is great And as an example I was looking at. Do you know what Waverly Hospital Is in Louisville Supposed to be most haunted on the continent
2: Right right yeah it's been on some of those ghost hunter shows,
3: yeah yeah it was a sanatorium uh t b clinic uh, people mm-hmm. went there to die. thousands of people thousands. went there to die and it's now not you know it's no longer a sanatorium, it is a tourist attraction for ghost hunters mm-hmm. uh, so up the hill, just up the hill from the the hospital itself, is a cell tower site and Where that cell tower is today used to be the um, Freemason cemetery that was associated with the hospital. You know, if you were in the hospital, and it's not there anymore, the cemetery is no longer there. Um, And the old image. You know, the old Google Earth image, you can still see where it was. You can still see where the graves were. You can see how they were laid out, and you can see very plainly that it was laid out with a square and a compass. Mm
5: -hmm.
3: (laughs) And now you can see a pile of headstones bulldozed up together.
4: Um, Mm. My father-in-law was a heavy equipment operator uh, down around Detroit for many years, and I talked with him one day, and I said, I'm interested in this road called Mound Road and I said did you ever work in that area he says oh sure because they did they cleared land for streets for shopping centers for whatever and uh, he was a, he pushed a big uh, bulldozer and I said did you ever knock over any mounds he says lots of them and I says, uh, how about bones? Do you ever find bones? He said, lots of them. I says, what do you do? He said, we just keep right on it going. He said, because okay. they were instructed that way. If they find a bone, they should call the coroner or police or something. Uh, but then that would stop their operations, and then they would lose money, and they would lose their deadline and also that happens all over.
3: Well, it, you make an interesting point because in Indiana um, – and, and with NAGPRA as a national level thing. If you are digging anything and you find a grave, you're supposed to stop. It,
5: mm-hmm. Preserve
3: that grave. Unless you're a coal mine or a mine of any kind in Indiana. But coal mine being a primary one. And they just keep going. Mm-hmm. They just keep going. I knew a a, my, a a heavy equipment operator that worked in a mine... The south end of my county, and they uh, strip mining operation, he came across a town of log houses laid out with streets and <sighs> draining stitches and cisterns slash wells, um, storage pits, you know he just peeled that dirt back, and he stopped he said, "Oh look, it's a town and the boss said, "You don't stop, keep going." you don't stop for anything cuz well, that's what they that's what they've done this
1: with this the, that's what they've done with the stone chambers here in the northeast there used to be 800 of them now we're down to 200 they well widened. you're not very
4: far from Jeffrey Woodham you need to connect with him and he would be delighted to take you you know sometimes early or late winter can be good because the foliage is gone and it's easier to find some things uh, she put some tall boots on. Uh, <laughs> so
1: No, well, uh, my, my late husband and I, you know, did a documentary on the stone chambers that are here in the Northeast. Right. And he found uh, some, too.
4: He may know of some that you you did not get to be documented. And yeah. He found some. He got into one, and then a, a friend took a picture, and it was had streaks of light and orbs, streaks of light shooting out from it. So he felt that it was a high-energy place just
1: mm-hmm.
5: himself.
4: But things showed up in the photograph.
1: I will try to get a hold of him.
4: Right. So when we're done here, I could give you a phone number.
1: That would be great.
3: So back to Google Earth for just a moment, because it is (laughs) one of my prime tools. um, And for the audience, for the people who have not listened to me before, Most of my research is about line-of-sight communications before Columbus, and it wasn't North America. It was all over the world, and people were using a system all over the world. They used different alphabets. They used different numerical systems, et cetera, et cetera, but it was all with transmitted light, whether it was reflected sunlight or artificial light by a fire. didn't matter. They were conveying, they were texting. That's what they were doing. They were texting. That's
4: what you were showing us this time at conference with the mirrors and the communicating signals.
3: Correct. That and only I work when the sun well, well, yeah, the mirrors only work when the sun shines, unless it's one at Alexandria, which could be turned to reflect the fire at the bottom. Mm-hmm. But. The Google Earth is my main tool because it gives me the elevation, not just a map, but it gives me the elevation of a point. Mm-hmm. So I can go back sites sight without ever going to the place. And I can know nice. whether that beam, that beam of light would travel, you know, 18 feet or 18 miles. So it, it reduces my travel costs immensely.
5: Oh yes, <laughs> and, and, right. It's
3: a poor and,
4: man's travel tool. Yeah,
2: and you know, you can also gauge how, how long they can, you know, shine the, uh, you know, do, do their uh, like basically texting by, uh, what moving the direction of the mica sheets. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you, know, you, should, you, know, you can you know, get get out the little measure uh, you know, ruler and figure out how how far it is from hilltop to hilltop. It, it, you know, I've spent many nights y- using Google Earth. It, it, it's fa- fantastic for the kind of work we do.
3: Now, one of the tools within Google Earth that I find most um, effective is that you can draw a line from point to point and. You can elevate that line, whatever, however much you want. You can either have it follow the ground contours or go across the ground. Above oh, the nifty!
4: Ground. I didn't know about that one.
3: And well, it's a little bit of work, but it's it's worth it because uh, typically the tower sites that are described in the you know Raffinesque and all the other uh, antiqu- antiquarians who preceded me. They kept track of all the stone towers or wooden towers that they found that were, you know, remainders of a previous culture who used them. And the stone towers were typically either described as 30 or 33 feet above ground to the platform.
5: Mm.
3: Now, if if you added like, you know, 33 degrees. Well, perhaps. But, you know, (laughs) all I can tell you is I know where to put my line above the ground in Google Earth. 33 feet above the ground and that line will remain for the contour uh, above the contour of the earth from point to point within Google Earth and then I can gauge well. did they have a clear line of sight or was it interrupted by terrain or Uh even forward
4: Right, well that's a good tool to use between important sites and structures
3: Right, and that's how I was able, and it started right out there by Mark's place at Moundsville, because Around Moundsville, there are 17 known such signal sites, and they've been known since at least 1843, when Schoolcraft was there and mapped them out. Some of them were uh, defended; uh, they had, you know, um, earthworks and/or palisades around them to keep them safe as defenses. Most of them were open. They were Adena period, so they were before AD 400. Uh, but some of the walls that were built around them were later. So that tells me that the cultures that came through used what was already there. Used mm-hmm. it for the same purposes. They may not have used the same alphabet yep. or the same numerics or the same way of making their mirrors or however they did it.
4: But yep, until it you gave that talk, I, I never even thought about um, signal mirrors. You know, we all heard about smoke signals, but that's kind of like smoke signals only better. And it just can carry communication over great distances in a short, fairly short time. And yeah, I, uh, I was and impressed. And then well, to use not just a, like, a little hand mirror you might think, g- carry in your pocket, but large sheets of reflective mica that would even be more effective.
2: Yeah, yeah and yeah, well, one of uh, Rick's favorites. You know, antiquarians, Caleb Atwater d- Discusses a huge sheet That was found at the Circleville Mound
3: Yes, five that? and a half feet In diameter, I believe it was
2: Yeah, it, it was a really big one So, th- th- you know, there was a sample of uh, uh, You know, documented Evidence from 1820 Like 20 Miles South of Columbus, Ohio
3: you can yeah. read about it. Just, uh, I think uh, that was, that was in his 1818 report, I believe. I'd have to go check, mm-hmm. but I believe. Was. And he was reporting to the Antiquarian Society, which was founded in 1812 by a guy in uh, uh, Massachusetts by the name of Isaiah Thomas, and no, he was not a professional basketball player. <laughs>
4: Now, were they stymied by the restrictions imposed by the government and the Smithsonian and educational institutions, or were they more independent and able to go places that others did not well,
3: The Smithsonian did not exist until what was it eighteen forty so no, he was not not in eighteen eighteen the antiquarian 80, 80. society yeah, the antiquarian society founded in eighteen twelve um And members of that society have uh, been presidents and politicians and whatnot, up to Hmm. include Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Really? Uh, Hmm. Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, So
4: they did not have the legal political limitations that later years. uh,
3: Uh, Until later years, correct. So they, they still have collections of printed materials, but their collections of artifacts has dwindled, and many of them disappeared. They were yeah, collecting funny ev- how
4: that happens.
3: Yeah, in, in their early years, they were a lot like AAPS. They collected all the evidence and made it available to everyone. Um, they still have what is called the Celeron Plate, a lead plate that was found along the banks of the Ohio River, placed there by a French officer by the name of Celeron. In, I believe it was 1851 or uh, 1856 I believe it was right before the Seven Years War started because they were France was very much staking their claim to that part of North America that they called in France so that is one of thousands of such plates that were made and placed along their perceived border but it's the only one that's ever been found that we know of <laughs> So the Antiquarian Society had all of these, what they call, correspondents. Caleb Atwater being one of the more prominent because he was incredibly prolific, and he conducted what I would consider pretty good science. When they found an artifact, he would try to figure out what it was made of. He would take measurements of it. Um, he, would, he wasn't much of an artist. Uh, he did you know, describe pretty well. But he would do things like specific gravity tests. He he knew what the specific gravity of different metals were was, Hmm. so he could tell uh, silver from pot metal, or you know he could tell copper from brass from bronze by (laughs) its specific. Yeah, he he was a human metal detector. (laughs) Uh, But one of my favorite passages of his 1818 report came from Marietta, Ohio where the today's big the Templar Emblem Cemetery uh, is built around mounds and, and was inside a earthen uh, wall. Well, it was earthen by the time the white man got there. It had been earthen and palisades. But in the big mound, when they excavated it, I think the excavation was actually in 1816, and he was describing what someone had described to him, They found what they called a sword, uh, and its scabbard, and various metal accoutrements that went with such a thing. Well, a steel sword was old enough that it had turned to just rust. Uh, A cedar tree that was on top of the mound had fallen over, and it was 600 years old. Now, if you can imagine a 600-year-old red cedar tree, how big was that?
4: And slow-growing, and how cold it would have been to grow (laughs) that that old. So it
3: was rather ancient. But this this thing that he described, it had um, steel, rust, you know, steel or iron type of rust inside a copper and silver and leather scabbard. Scabbard. Wow. And the... uh, The copper and silver were joined in a way that he did not comprehend, kind of like the half-breeds you find in upper Michigan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And buttons. You better explain
4: half-breeds so we don't upset anybody.
3: Okay, half-breed is a term applied to a very specific type of copper and silver ingot. Uh, Not ingot. Uh, uh,
4: It could be vein. It could be a nugget. It could be almost anything, but they're growing together.
3: Yeah, they are formed together in the earth as conjoined twins, if you will, of copper and silver, and and it's not artificially put together. It's put that way by mm-hmm. nature.
4: And they're beautiful.
3: And, right, and so when the European and Middle Eastern archaeologists are saying we have no idea why they put silver in their copper or in their <laughs> it bronze, was there. It was copper there. it's copper does
4: have a portion of silver in it typically, yes, depending on what the, area but, it's found.
3: But the half-breeds are incredibly beautiful pieces of just raw metal. Just
4: yep, natural. and the copper is pure, and the silver is pure.
3: Yes, it is. They're, they're both in the 98 to 99% area of purity. and and, um, and the natives, pretty much all the tribes, value those above anything that is just silver or just copper. So they value mm-hmm. you both independently pretty highly, but when when they find a half breed, it is very special. So getting back to Caleb Atwater, he described all these things, and he 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 didn't have an agenda. Nobody in the Antiquarian Society had an agenda other than to learn. Mm-hmm. That's
5: then, a good place he,
3: to be. Then when the Smithsonian became a Government entity, even though it wasn't supposed to be Smithson had had very specific instructions. It was a scientific only
0: no no no
3: politics can't enter into this, but they did
4: <laughs> mm-hmm. yep, you got government it, money you got government control
3: it,
2: it, in uh, eventually get uh, the eugenics program. Uh, getting oh, involved uh, later on with science and we just heard all about that you know what Barbara was it was about 6 weeks ago with Jason's yeah discussion so that, uh, that's uh all all very un- unnerving yeah and oh.
4: and planned parenthood yeah. NAACP was founded by 21 white people, most of whom were uh, socialists, eugenicists, Marxists.
3: Yep. Indeed. Well. And they were um, not
4: to help the black people.
3: <laughs> no. no. Not really. It, uh, it was it was a left-handed compliment. Um. So. Judy. Yes, dear. Do you have any? Do you have anybody who is already committed for next year?
4: Yes, I do have one. Joan Conover, who had a wonderful article on Ancient American two issues ago, and although she's broadly educated and interested in many things, her focus at this point is about, what do you call them now? Uh, Canals, but very complicated Mm. canals. And her article in the Ancient American was South American, Brazilian, but they look very much like some in the, off the Mississippi, and so.
3: And the interior of Florida.
4: Yeah, yeah, very complex. And it it, it would been. It kind of reminds me of Florida, where they have all these channels and people build houses on both sides of them, and so everybody can get in their boat and go somewhere, go out to the ocean or go visit their neighbors or whatever. But these people lived all around on these ins and outs and and right angles, and, and then they eventually led to a river, which led to a larger body of water. So she's going to be going into that and connecting it to perhaps the copper trade, which makes it even more fun for us.
3: Well, I hope to see that one. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I was recently catching up on some of the recent studies of those Florida canals, and they, they're they up to like 13,000 miles of canals. Woohoo. That they think were there. Yeah, yeah, um, the, the st-
4: well, when you think of the days when people did not have cars, and, and horses didn't do so well in the woods and the thickets, and uh, water was the sensible way to travel.
3: Yes it was. Mark do
2: you uh, have Oh yeah, I just uh we are uh down to I uh, don't say like 7 minutes um l- left um you know, the like 5 to 10 minutes that uh Judy wanted to plug the uh DVDs uh, became <laughs> <laughs> hour and 45 minutes later and i am glad you stayed on for the whole show g I, I, it was really just a lot of fun just all, all you know just as we get into christmas time just having a, a, a nice time talking with uh friends we've been you know you know working with for uh years and just uh great to hear more uh you know points of view uh from new guests
4: it so, was fun so, so, you will not be able to categorize topic on this program we were all over the place uh yeah
2: uh, that's a, that, uh, that's all right we, we we just like you know just lots of information being presented Um uh, yeah we don't want to be known as just being one
3: dimensional got. <laughs>
4: Rick, I hope your nose didn't get cut off because you didn't get to do your talk.
3: Oh, no. I I prefer this over, you know, it's not that I don't like being the center of attention. Hey, I'm a Leo, too.
2: (laughs) We did pretty well, then.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we did great. I think we did great. I enjoy it a lot.
2: It was, it, fun. It, thank you. Yeah, it, it, and we st- uh you know, we're down to I don't know like 5 minutes. I, if uh Brenda wants to join, she's uh welcome to uh chime in for uh you know, the remaining time as well.
4: I will say well, goodbye then and let you wrap it up. Thank you very much. Good to meet you Barbara. <laughs> it was fun playing with with you all. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. All well, Judy, Maybe I sure ahead. appreciate you being here. I, I really do. I mean, I'm not the host here, but I appreciate the the camaraderie. I'm still on the camaraderie thing.
2: Yeah, indeed. indeed. It's, it's it's working really well. And, and uh, Judy, before you go, uh, do you want to give your uh, website again and plug the DVDs?
4: Mm-hmm. www.aapscopper.org, and you get this lovely set of our – all of our speakers of our conference just this last fall, this fall, for a special price now until December 10th for only $59, and that includes your shipping. It's a wonderful way. You would have spent a whole lot more if you had come to conference. Uh, so this is a nice way to to catch up. Even people who come to conference want the DVDs because there's so much going on they can't remember everything that they just heard. So it's a good refresher and... People take them to uh, groups, too, or have a little party at their house and show one or two of the, the talks. And and then stuff like this could happen. What we've just been doing the last hour and a half Absolutely. here.
3: I might suggest to some of the listeners that you go buy a, a set and give it to your local library.
4: That's a wonderful Great. idea. Thank
2: you. There you go. And, you know, I, I think we're going to have to talk with the Nicholases about being guests and Joan Conover. Uh, you know, her article in edition 119 of Ancient American is very interesting about the Perry Reese map. Oh, but, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, all, uh, you know, that all, those ancient waterways is. Are, are really fascinating subjects. So I you know besides just talking about you know a little bit of everything uh you know you also laid the foundations for more shows as you know Barbara and I you know to, you know start taking the show into a, a variety of directions. So you know, a lot of good uh points were made and you know, we just really appreciate it?
3: Well, My Judy person. and I, we're talking about this stuff. So,
5: <laughs> well, by also, the way, before I
3: I, forget I, I want let
1: well, let me jump in fast and and remind people that that um, this show is also archived on YouTube, and if you want to refer back to it, you can go to, either barbaradelong.com and get to the YouTube channel that way, or just go to YouTube and type in Barbara Delong, and. Um, if you enjoy the variety of shows, please subscribe to the station so you can be notified when we bring more really cool people on.
3: I think I okay, like Rick, that. All yours. We, we were just called really cool people, Judy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, you were. I like that.
3: Well, thank you for having me and Judy to tell Glenn hello for me and uh, wake him up and tell him hello for me.
4: Well, he's he's probably in the truck sleeping now somewhere. Oh. He's a truck. Anyway, you know, he's home on the weekends. Yep.
3: Okay. And and he is his own expert level in this area too. Just just so everybody knows. But
4: right. Mark, he was in archaeology before I was.
3: <laughs> Grazer of the Golden Bear. It's on Amazon.
1: It's a great book. It's a great book. Even the third time you've read it, it's a great book.
3: Someone else said that today, too.
2: (laughs) And, uh, Rick, you're going to have an article in the new Ancient American that's going to be out probably in a week. Yes. All right?
3: Uh, Yeah, it's at the printer now, I believe. So it should be in the mail probably by the day after tomorrow. Cool. Uh, Mark,
1: you have to start saying good
3: night.
2: All right. Good good night, everyone. Uh, I just want to uh, thank Rick and Judy for being great guests. I want to thank uh, Amy, Sophia, and her sidekick mom again for giving me some – delicious and scrumptious food to help me get through the evening on a full belly. So uh, just, uh, th- thank you, everyone, for uh, t- tuning in. And we'll be back Tuesday with um, our big Christmas show with David Collis and the Reverend Michael Carter. So Two
1: more cool people.
2: Yeah. That's next Tuesday from ten to midnight Eastern Time, and we okay. have lots more great guests in in the works. We're, we're uh, Barbara and I've been spending a lot of time uh, trying to bring the best <clears throat> best to everyone. So thank you for but, the work that you But for now,
1: did. but for now we have to say good night.
4: Good night, sweetheart. It's time <laughs> to go.
1: It is time to go. Say goodnight, Mark.
2: <laughs> good night, everyone. We'll
5: see you next Thanks for having us. Good night. Thank you very much.